The King and His Kingdom, uh, lesson number four. If you're following with your Bibles, uh, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter eight today. Matthew eight and nine. Title of the lesson is The King in Action. The King in Action. And of course our series is The King and His Kingdom, Jesus in the book of Matthew. I've explained to you that each author, each gospel writer kind of looks at Jesus from a different perspective. Matthew looks at Jesus from the perspective that he is the king and he has come to usher in his kingdom, king of the kingdom. So all of our lessons deal with that idea. Now in our last session about Jesus as king over his kingdom, we focused on the kingdom part of the statement. What was the kingdom like? And we looked at the kingdom over which the king presided. And we said that the kingdom was not a physical kingdom or a geopolitical kingdom, but rather it was a kingdom that existed whenever the will of Jesus was being done. So when the will of Jesus is being done in your life, the kingdom is in you. Okay? When, the king, when the will of Jesus is being done in a group, the kingdom exists in that group. Uh, so um, we learned that. Also we said that uh, whenever Jesus' will was being done the following things uh, existed because of it. So when the will of Jesus is done, when the kingdom is present, true happiness or blessedness exists and true righteousness exists before God and true relationships between man and God exist. This is when the kingdom is there. And when the kingdom is there, there is a true response to God's word. In other words, people are responding to God in the way that God requires us to respond. That's, those are features of the, of the kingdom. So in the following section, Matthew refocuses his attention on the king this time, and he describes the incredible pace and impact of the king as he carries out his ministry in establishing the kingdom. All right? you know, in, in John chapter 21, verse 25, the Apostle John, he says that the world could not contain all of the books if all of what Jesus did was recorded. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. The world couldn't contain the books if everything about Jesus and what He did was recorded. Now this is certainly true when you examine the millions of books, and I say millions, written about Jesus and His life. You don't believe me? Just Google Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, it never ends. The encyclopedias, the books, the commentaries, the devotional material, so on and so forth. I mean, so much material has been written. Bill O'Reilly, you know, the one that, that wrote the, uh, the Killing of Jesus, Bill O'Reilly, the political commentator, uh, he says that Jesus is the most famous person in all of history and, and he bases his claim on the fact that more has been written about Jesus than any other individual uh, in history. So uh, there's a lot and, and, and what's really amazing is that all of this material has been written based on the very small amount of information that we have in the, in the have you realized how many pages you've got you know, in the New Testament about Jesus? And, and I mean, take away Acts, the epistles, those kind of go about his teachings. 
just the four gospels. The four gospels you know, are writers that kind of documented his life. So, such a thin volume of information about Jesus has yielded this incredible amount of commentary and so on and so forth. So in chapters eight, there's a reason I'm saying all this by the way. In chapters eight and nine of Matthew's gospel, Matthew describes three very hectic days in the life of Jesus. And if you kind of focus in on these three very hectic days of ministry, you kind of understand why. You know, uh, if everything he did was recorded, the world wouldn't contain all the, the books. Three days filled with travel, miracles, teachings, all of which are given as a glimpse into Jesus' spectacular ministry as the king works at establishing his kingdom among men. So Matthew does not list these events in chronological order. He groups them into blocks of three, miracle or blocks of miracles and teachings. For example, he'll, he'll describe three miracles and then a teaching block. Then he'll describe another three miracles and another teaching block. Then four miracles and a summary of the, uh, of the teaching. So this is how he lays out his uh, his material for these three days. This arrangement doesn't describe the flow of events as they happened each day, but they're easier to remember for teaching purposes. And one of the things that we need to note is the book of Matthew was actually like a, a guidebook for new Christians in the early, you know, in the first century. If someone became a Christian, you know, today we have books like Now That I Am a Christian, you know what I'm saying? It gives a lot of lessons on what to do, what to know as a new, but in those days they didn't have anything like that. Matthew's gospel was the now that I'm a Christian because it, it had a, a, an overview of the teaching and the ministry of, uh, of Jesus. So in these two action-packed chapters, again, Matthew describes 10 miracles and three sets of teaching by the Lord. Now the teaching has a variety of topics, but the most important one is that of discipleship. So Matthew has described so far, in our lessons so far, uh, in the series, Matthew's described the birth of the king, the witness of, the, of his rulership from men and angels and even God himself. He's described the nature of the kingdom and now, uh, and finally, the way into the kingdom. So far we've covered all of those subjects. Now he's going to describe the way Jesus went about calling men into the kingdom and into the service of the kingdom. So we're going to begin in chapter 8 as Matthew describes the first group of miracles followed by the teaching. Realize now I can't, you know, we've got 30 minutes, I can't comment on everything. This is going to be a kind of an overview type thing, so you need to kind of stay with me here. So we begin first of all in Matthew chapter 8 and we'll read verses 1 to 4. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so this man demonstrates his faith. He believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus can heal him. And there is instant healing. Jesus touched him. 
the significance of that, of course, is that the lepers were untouchable. So Jesus extends this mercy to this man, demonstrates he is the one who gives the law, touches him. And the idea that he had to go see a priest, not tell anyone and go see a priest, he had to show the priest that he was healed in order to confirm his cleansing so that he could begin his life again. In other words, so long as he was unclean, he couldn't go to the temple, he couldn't mix socially, so on and so forth. Once he went to the priest and the priest examined him according to the law, the Levitical law, and the priest confirmed his cleanliness, he could then go back to normal, to normal living. So that's the first miracle. The next miracle is the centurion's slave uh, that is healed, uh, continuing in verse five. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me and say, and I say to this one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my slave do this and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So the centurion, a man, a Roman soldier in charge of a, a group of a hundred soldiers, a pious man, a proselyte, in other words, he was, he was uh, uh, believing in the Jewish uh, religion. Uh, he had built a synagogue for the people. He addresses Jesus as Lord to demonstrate his faith. Also, he takes Jesus at his word. Man, I could preach a long time about just taking Jesus at his word. But he takes Jesus at his word and the Lord marvels at the quality of his faith. Imagine for a second, imagine you impress Jesus. It's one thing to impress your boss or impress your friends and so on, but imagine doing something that impresses Jesus and notice what the thing is that impresses Him and that is His faith. And so the servant is healed by the word, um, not by personal willingness, not by you know, he, uh, he knew the Lord, so on and so forth. Jesus demonstrates His power by healing someone from a distance, not even having any contact with that individual. That's one of the significance of that miracle. Now we move on to, the, to Peter's mother-in-law, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, mother and some general miracles. In verse uh, 14, uh, let's see, I just want to do verse 14, there we go. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him. A little further, it says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Again, he healed her without discourse immediately and completely. And then we see a lot of people being brought to Jesus with physical, emotional, spiritual ailments. Matthew shows that this miraculous healing power of Jesus was in accord with prophecy concerning the Messiah. Remember last week we taught, or, oh no, on, on a, one of the classes we talked about miracles. Uh, you know, during Vacation Bible School we talked about miracles, so on and so forth, and we said miracles were for a sign. They weren't to amaze people. They weren't to impress people. 
they were according to God's word. Well here Jesus is performing miracles, not to amaze people, but Matthew says he's performing miracles in order to fulfill prophecy about the Messiah. Okay? Very important thing to remember when we're thinking about modern faith healers, so on and so forth. So now we move into chapter 8, verse 18, and there's a block of teaching. So see, three miracles, boom, 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 now a block of teaching. So the teaching begins in verse 18. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to Him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Another of the disciples said to Him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. What do you think that means? You know, instructions to would-be disciples. What do you think he means? You know, he, there's a warning of the otherworldly experience of the kingdom. Those in the kingdom are in the world, but they have difficulty being part of it. That's what he's talking about. They never really feel at home. It's not that Jesus didn't have a place to stay. We knew he lived as an adult in Capernaum. We knew he had a house. Right? Because they lowered somebody into his house for his healing. So it's not a, he wasn't homeless. That's not what he's talking about. It's just this feeling of not belonging to this place. I've heard brothers and sisters say that sometimes. Man, am I ready to go. <laughs> I'm just, Lord, take me now. I'm just ready to go. I'm just so tired of this place, so tired of the sin, so tired of the, you know, just tired of it. You know. I'd love to be with the Lord. Paul said it. You know, It'd be better for me to be with the Lord, but for your sakes, I need to stay a little while longer. We, we sometimes say that as well for our children. The feeling that you're just a pilgrim, you're just passing through. Especially for um, a Jew or a scribe whose identity was so tied up with history, culture and, and, and geography it would be hard to identify with Christ rather than the physical religion that was based in history. You know, that was the problem with the Jews. Their religion was so tied up with culture, so tied up with the land and so on and so forth. It was hard for them to understand this idea of a kingdom that had nothing to do with land, had nothing to do with physicality, if you, if you wish. And so Jesus is trying to say, you know, my disciples, you make your home here, but you're not at home until you're with me in heaven. That's the, that's the point he's trying to make in this teaching passage. And then he says the dead bury the dead. Seems kind of harsh, right? Seems kind of harsh. You know, Jesus here simply saying to would-be disciples, let the spiritually dead worry about the things of this world. Don't let these things hold you back from following me. That's what he's saying. So we continue on with a series of miracles. Remember I said miracles, teaching, so there's the teaching. Another group of miracles. First one, the calming of the storm, verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And so they 
you, know, you have to remember one thing. These are fishermen. <laughs> it's not like they're not used to being in a boat. It's not like they're not used to a storm. You know? They know a storm. They're not easily frightened. But it must have been some kind of storm to frighten them. And so they appealed to Jesus in fear to save them from the storm. Why was that? Well, he, Jesus says it. They had little faith. Not that they didn't have any faith, but they had little faith. And little faith usually expresses itself in fear. Little faith usually expresses itself in fear. Not just fear here of the storm, but fear of going forward, fear of taking a step, fear of what might happen tomorrow, fear of maybe God won't take care of me, fear of this and fear of that. And usually if you scratch and go down deep a little bit, you find out the, the, the cause of that is little faith, little faith. Jesus here demonstrates His power over nature. I'll tell you one thing, I've never seen a modern faith healer demonstrate any power over nature. Now they'll cure your bad back or your short-sightedness or if your arm's crooked, you know, whatever, but I've never seen them have power over, over nature. But this lesson is not about that, but I want you to keep that in mind. Another miracle follows, verse 28, casting out of the demons. When he came to the other side into the country of the, Gada, uh, uh, the Gadarenes, excuse me, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. 34. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they implored Him to leave their region. So demoniacs, very dangerous, possessed by many demons. Interesting, the dialogue between Jesus and the demons. The demons feared that their judgment was at hand. See, the demons know the result of their judgment, but they don't know the time. They don't, just like us, we know the result of our judgment, right? not guilty by virtue of forgiveness. We know the result of our judgment. We just don't know the time. These demons, they also knew the result of their judgment. Guilty, but they didn't know the time. So uh, he casts them out with a word. Um, and then the evil spirits cause the swine to run into the lake and drown. All kinds of speculation because of that, but I'm going to dwell on that today. Simply that even swine <laughs> you know, are moved to do crazy things with the demons. Also demonstrating the power of those, of those spirits. Uh, we continue uh, in chapter 9, this time a paralytic that's cured. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea. Remember, this is a sequence here. He goes to one side, this happens, crosses over, it's a lake. You know? So it says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. 
And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. There, there, by the way, is the proper place to use the word awe. Man, this is awesome ice cream. Wrong word. Sweet, delicious, yeah, awesome. Because uh, if you use the word awesome for ice cream, what, are you going to, what word are you going to use for a miracle? See what I'm saying? It's the right word, right, right spot. So what happens here? Basically, straightforward, he forgives this person's sin, the paralytic. And the scribes, the Pharisees grumble because they feel Jesus has no right or power to do this. And you know what? They're right. They're correct. No man, I'm not, I don't have the power to come up to you and say, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. I don't have that power. No man has that power. So they accuse him of blasphemy. Again, correct, if it were so, that he was only a man. So he demonstrates his might and power by healing the disease. And the idea, of course, the unwritten idea is, if I have power over your infirmity and I can heal you through a miracle, then I also have the power to forgive your sin. The people, not the scribes, the Pharisees, but the people glorify, glorify God. And that was the purpose of miracles. Remember we said, why miracles? to identify or confirm the identity of an individual or to give glory to God. And in this case, they gave glory to God. So there's the miracle section. And then we go into a teaching section. All right. So in Matthew 9.9 it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So Matthew is um, uh, Matthew is called. Um, note how simply he writes about his own call. Remember, Matthew is writing this. He's the one describing how he was called. He gives his name. He describes his former life, a tax collector. He simply, in very simple terms, talks about the call and the response. And actually, he uses the third person to describe himself and no dialogue between Jesus and himself, no dialogue. Not what he said, and then Jesus said, and what they talked about, and blah, blah, blah. A very simple description of his calling by Jesus. Demonstrating what? Well, demonstrating his, his humility. Now we move on to another teaching section. It says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at table in the house, where? Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Why did they come? Well, who do you think Matthew's friends were? It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' response was that His ministry was one of compassion and not ceremony. 
miracles of healing and ministry of the cross motivated by compassion in order to glorify God and save souls. That's what he was about. Nothing glorifies God more than soul saving service to the poor and to the needy. Isn't that what James said? True religion, true religion, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world, that means holy living, and caring for the widows and orphans, benevolence, mercy. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no room for ceremony in our faith. Of course, there's room for ceremony. We take the communion every Sunday. What do you think that is? That's a ceremony. We have a, you know, how to do it, when to do it, that type of thing. It's ceremony. Ceremony's not bad. It has its place. You know, communion is the time we publicly acknowledge our faith before one another and before the world. And we do it in a way that is respectful and orderly and so on and so forth. And we do it every Sunday. It's ceremony. Baptism, it's ceremony, isn't it? It's water, it's immersion, it's ceremony. It has meaning, it has power, so on and so forth. But in and itself, it's a, it's a ceremony that God has given us to relive that, you know, that death, burial, and, and resurrection. It's ceremony. But that's not the core of our religion. You know, what, happened, what men do, when I say men, I don't mean male, I mean what hu human beings do is they take these two elements and they create this huge structure around it so that pretty soon our religion consists of managing the ceremonies. And that's when our religion becomes dry and creaky and dull and boring. Why? Well, it wasn't meant to be like that. Our faith is meant to be the proclamation of the gospel in any way that we can. Serving, uh, I'll give you a quick example. Um, uh, you know, we had VBS. We're serving those little children. We want to help those little children learn about Jesus from the earliest stage possible, right? 85, we tried to count, it was impossible to count, there's so many people. But we figured around 85 to 90 adults and teenagers participated in that VBS program. And it was four nights and four late nights. We finished 8.30, quarter to nine. People were wiped. They were tired. The kids were you know, cranked out with sugar and all kinds of stuff. You know, and parents were dead because they had to put them to bed late and get up. For, oh. But I've never seen a happier bunch of people. <laughs> I've not seen a happier bunch of people. Why? Because we're doing the thing that our religion is about. Jesus is saying to them, you know, I came to, 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 for mercy's sake, for salvation's sake. You guys want to do the ceremony? You want to make your whole life about the ceremony? You go right ahead. That's not what God is looking for. All right, I'm going to fall behind here if I keep going. All right, then John's disciples, verses 14. It says, then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. So the question arose, why did John's disciples, like John and the Pharisees, fast, but Jesus' disciples, they don't fast at all? 
Now the Pharisees fasted on a regular basis as part of their religious practice, much of which was hypocritical. John and his disciples fasted partly because of their Jewish conditioning by the Pharisees and partly because their leader John was an ascetic. Right? No wine, lived off honey, no meat. Also at some point John was in prison and they prayed and fasted for his release. So Jesus answers this question with two examples. The first example Jesus' appearance is one of joy. The king of the kingdom has come and like the appearance of the kingdom, uh, excuse me, like the appearance of the bridegroom at a wedding, it's time for feasting. Could you imagine going to your child's wedding or going to your brother's wedding or whatever and they serve up the food and you say, no thank you, just water for me, I'm fasting today. Really? You know, it's okay to fast, good to fast, good spiritual exercise, but on the day of the wedding of your child or your brother or your own wedding? Of course not. Now when he is killed, you know, where he, there's a prophecy of the cross there, there'll be time to fast and pray, but not now. And then he talks about the patch and the wineskin. As I said, the reason that the Pharisees' disciples fasted was because it was imposed on them by their leaders and by tradition. Remember I said about the ceremony, building this building out of ceremony? That was another one of those ceremonies. And the reason John's disciples fasted was because of the example of John and the fact that he was by this time in prison. Jesus did not lay this condition upon His disciples and since He was with them, they rejoiced in His presence. No need to fast. Now the verses about the patch and the wineskin, that refers to their spiritual condition. He doesn't reveal to them, like He did for His own disciples, who were the new garment, who were the new wineskin, the details of his death and resurrection because they didn't believe. In other words, he was the new patch and they in their disbelief, they were the old cloth. He was the new wine and they in their disbelief, they were the old wineskins. He didn't give them the details of the resurrection and the glorious kingdom to those who didn't believe because they couldn't take it. They couldn't, it would kill them. It, and, and they demonstrated that it destroyed them. This he gave to the ones who believed, the new wineskins, the new cloth. Their disbelief, it was a parabolic way of saying, their disbelief would, would eventually uh, destroy them. All right, then after this teaching, he goes on to another section of uh, miracles. The officials daughter in verse 18 and 19 says while he was saying these things to them a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said my daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples and then we jump ahead to finish this story. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder he said leave for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. So he asks Jesus to save a dying daughter. Jesus arrives after the child has died. He resurrects her from the dead. And this, of course, prefigures his own resurrection. 
You know, the idea is if he can raise somebody else from the dead, and he, can, he has the power to do that himself. Everything he did centers around the mission he was sent to, to do. All right, so let's double back now to the other story. So when the, the, the synagogue official approaches him, Jesus is about to go with him, and then something happens. A woman touches him. So we'll read that story. It says, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If, if, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman uh, was well. So the woman touches his cloak for healing. And Jesus knows her purpose, her presence, and also the power coming from him. That in itself is a miracle. Never mind that he healed her, that he knew that she touched him and why and so on and so forth. So she confesses her need and thus confesses her faith. In other places you, know, you have a more dialogue concerning this story. Now it was important for her to know, you know that's why he brings, brings her out and makes her tell her story and makes her confess. It was important for her to know how she was saved. She was saved by faith, not magic. The cloak didn't have some sort of magic power. It was her faith that was moving her to touch him. That's what saved her and he wanted to make that clear. Also, he wanted to make clear to the people who were around who saved her. It was him that saved her. And why she was saved? Because of his love. Others had to know of her healing for God to be glorified. And again, just like the demoniac, her healing had to be public information, how it was done, so she could go to the priests, she could be cleansed, she could then enter back into normal society because having a hemorrhage of blood made her continually unclean, meaning she couldn't, no one could touch her, she was isolated, she couldn't worship, so on and so forth. All right, the blind men. We need to kind of move along here. The blind men. Uh, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that, uh, throughout that land. So they asked for help. He confirms their faith by healing them. He didn't want them to stir up the masses before his time because in telling everybody people get stirred up, they start following him, that limits you know, his mobility to carry out his ministry. And then another miracle in this group, the dumb and demon-possessed individual, verse 32, it says, um, as they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the uh, demons. Again, an individual brought to Jesus for healing. The crowds marveled because of all the miracles except the healing of the blind and dumb. None of this had ever been done. That's the point. None of this had, had ever been done in Israel. Other prophets and other individuals had done miracles. The Jews had seen miracles before, but this particular, even the raising of someone who was dead had been done, Elijah. 
But healing a person like this, that had never been done in Israel. And of course, what do the Pharisees do? They begin to accuse him of being Satan. I mean, talk about how depraved these guys were. Can you imagine <laughs> seeing a miracle like this done and, 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 and saying this is Satan who's doing this? And so the last couple of verses, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. See that? The gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvests. So the last summary teaching here, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. Matthew summarizes the nature of Jesus' ongoing ministry, teaching, preaching, healing. The teaching and call to discipleship is followed by a prayer for a response. And then in the next section, which we're not going to do today, the selection of and the sending out of the disciples to multiply the teaching, the preaching. In other words, He does it, teach, preach miracles, and His apostles follow Him around and watch what He's doing. He gives them the power to do it, and He sends them out to do exactly the same thing, teach, preach, and miracles. So you're wondering, you know, I don't usually do this in my class on Matthew. Usually it's a survey type thing. We pick a few key scriptures. I wanted to do it this way, to just read about them, to show you, this is three days. Imagine this kind of three days. Imagine if you were an apostle following Jesus around and witnessing the, in three days. I mean, I'm out of breath just reading it. You know, just reading about it. I can't even begin in my notes to, to write enough stuff to cram into 30 minute class about this. And this was just three days. And we certainly could have gone into each miracle and each teaching much more deeply. I simply you know, covered the top. So we have through Matthew's eyes and through his pen a description of the everyday life of the king. This was the everyday life. The only rest that they had was when they were walking or traveling between Jerusalem and Galilee, back and forth. Took a couple of days to do that. They'd walk up and down, back and forth. Only time, and while he was with them, he would be teaching them on the way. And so Matthew gives us a description of his everyday life as he goes about establishing his kingdom in the hearts of men and women through his miraculous power and his inspired teaching. All right, next time, next week, we're going to do the kingdom in conflict because he teaches, he preaches, he does miracles. The people are amazed, they're awestruck. There's the right word. But the leaders are saying, uh-oh, this guy's trouble. So you know, in today's language, you know, Jesus is leaning in. He's leaning in and he's you know, pushing the envelope here. Well, now there's going to be the pushback from the leaders and we'll kind of tackle that next week. All right, that's our class for today. Thank you.